Hello, and welcome to the Yeah No Journal Club. In each episode, we dissect an article from the psychiatry literature with the goal of understanding both the clinical importance of the study and key aspects of research design and methods. We start with a single confusing sentence from the paper and go from there with a goal of getting from, yeah, no, I don't get it, to yes, yes, this totally makes sense. I'm Dr. Adrienne Dela Cruz. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and associate program director in the General Psychiatry Residency Program in the Peter O'Donnell Brain Institute at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Hi, I'm Marissa Toops. I'm an independent psychiatrist and also an affiliated clinical assistant professor at UT Southwestern Medical School Department of Psychiatry. Hi, I'm Adam Brenner. I'm the vice chair for education I'm professor of psychiatry at UT Southwestern in Dallas, and I'm the no in yeah, no. We'll be discussing the primary outcomes from the ED Safe study. So that officially is Ivan Miller and colleagues. Suicide prevention in an emergency department population, the ED Safe study. It was published in JAMA Psychiatry in 2017, volume 74, issue 6, pages 563 to 570. Adam, do you have a confusing sentence for us to start with? I do. This is from the discussion. Our study has several limitations. First, we used a sequential design instead of a randomized clinical trial. While our design allowed investigation of system-based interventions that would have been impossible with a traditional randomized clinical trial, it is possible that time or other non-study system changes may have produced differences in participant samples or other unknown factors across phases. Dr. Toops, do you understand that sentence? I do. I understand that sentence as well. And I think the things to figure out are why a sequential design instead of an RCT? Why do we use this kind of design for system-based changes? Um, And why does it then get real complicated real fast to figure out if your intervention (laughs) did the thing that you think it did? We can just say because it's an effectiveness study and then podcast over. So this was a study that was trying to look uh, if people come into the emergency room with ongoing suicidal ideation and or a recent suicide attempt, can it, you do an intervention based in the emergency department that will then improve outcomes, reduce the rate of suicide attempt um, in the year following that index ED visit? Just a major like holy grail of clinical psych outcomes. Because we know that a lot of patients with who will go on to make a suicide attempt or die by suicide are seen in medical settings a short time before the suicide attempt or, or the death by suicide. Um, but we're not great in medical settings at recognizing those people or knowing what to do about it. That's and- why it's a holy grail. I mean, we really, we know these people are floating around and like, even though they don't present necessarily saying that they're suicidal, that that is probably part of the reason why they're showing up in the ER in some bigger sense and like figuring out who those people are and then figuring out whether screening is enough is also a a huge question that they were trying to answer. This was done in medical emergency rooms um, that did not have an associated psychiatric emergency room. So this is regular old medical EDs. They didn't have emergency psychiatry. So some of the hospitals could have had a consult team that might come to the ED sometimes. They don't, that wasn't um, a criteria for whether the sites could participate or not. It was only that they didn't have an emergency psychiatry facility. This study happened in eight emergency departments across seven states, and these ranged from small community hospitals to academic center. 
the participants in the study were adults presenting to the ED, either a suicide attempt or ideation um, in the week prior to that ED visit. Something happened in the ED. What that thing was depends on which phase of the study we're in. All study participants were contacted by phone at 6, 12, 24, 36, and 52 weeks following their emergency department visit. And they also did medical record review at 6 and 12 months after the ED visit. And those phone calls and that medical records review was what the study did to try and identify which participants had a suicide attempt or a death by suicide in the year following their single visit to the ED. So one thing I, I wonder that it's not 100% clear to me, in the treatment as usual phase, they only enrolled people who mentioned spontaneously that they were suicidal or had a suicide attempt, I assume? Yes. Because they weren't screening. Yes. But they only include people in the study who have an attempt or ideation within the week prior to the ED visit. So if you're right, but in treatment as usual, you'd miss most of the ideation because you wouldn't right. be asking. You would right. only only pick up people who had been severe enough to do something that then would be show up in the met routine history most of the time, I would think. Well, that's interesting, Dr. Tubes. I hadn't thought of that as I was reading it. Uh, that that what you're if I'm understanding correctly what you're saying is that in the in the first phase it's people who come and say I'm here because I was suicidal in the yes. second phase it's all of those people plus uh, people who got got screened in I mean you know maybe some of the EDs had nurses or somebody who are very savvy about rooting that out mm-hmm. but you'd probably miss a whole bunch of the of the milder ideation cases if you're not screening phase one treatment as usual. EDs do exactly the same thing they always do. People who are identified as having a suicide attempt or ideation in the week prior to the ED visit get a bunch of phone calls after their ED visit just to see whether or not they've made a suicide attempt since their ED visit. In phase two, they put in universal screening. Um, And universal screening is done with a three-item measure created for the study called, they call the patient safety screener that asks over the past two weeks, have you felt down, depressed, or hopeless? Over the past two weeks, have you had thoughts of killing yourself? And over the past two weeks, have you attempted to kill yourself? And then if the answer to the last question is yes, it says within the past 24 hours, within the last month, between one and six months ago or more than six months ago. Um, And then those people then again get the phone calls after their ED visit to determine whether or not they've made a suicide attempt or died by suicide after that ED visit. And then in phase three, they are doing both screening and intervention. So in phase three, everyone who screens positive on that three to four item questionnaire, an additional screening for risk by, the, by an ED physician the nursing staff provides a self-administered safety plan, which I thought was a really interesting wording because it sounds like the nurse hands the patient like a blank safety plan, doc, a structured safety plan document for the patient to then complete themselves. In addition to that, patients got 10 to 20 minute follow-up phone calls, uh, up to seven phone calls to the patient, up to four co- phone calls to their significant other. And the phone calls consisted of case management, individual psychotherapy, significant other involvement based on the CLASP protocol. 
and CLASP stands for Coping Long-Term active suicide program. Authors are very clear that this is not really psychotherapy. This is more like advising, problem solving happening in a 10 to 20 minute period. You know, it, it gets at the question of what is psychotherapy. As you guys know, the, the most robust finding of all the psychotherapy research literature is that it's the common elements that have the biggest bang. And so those common elements are certainly going to be there in any 20 minute phone call that where somebody calls and says, I'm concerned about you. We can think together and understand something together about what you're dealing with. So that's it in terms of the intervention. I mean, this is a, a relative. I mean, they did, if they were acutely suicidal, they did follow up on it in an appropriate way clinically. Yes. Um, I mean, they mentioned make, uh, hooking everybody up to a suicide hotline because they didn't have somebody in the ER, but I assume that then they also referred people appropriately to psychiatric care if they, uh, if that was part of their treatment as usual. Right. And again, the way they did this is not that some patients were, were randomized to just screening and others were randomized to screening plus intervention. Instead, what they did is they said, okay, this hospital is currently doing treatment as usual. Time passes. Now this hospital is doing screening only. Time passes. Now this hospital is doing screening and intervention. Jumping into the results. So they had 497 patients in the treatment as usual phase, 377 in the screening phase, and 502 in the intervention phase. Across phases, the average age of the patients was 27. 56% 56% were female, 67% were white. A third had made a suicide attempt in the week prior to the ED visit, and 87% had a psychiatric diagnosis. I think these numbers reinforce a lot of the things we know about suicide and suicide, who's more likely to make a suicide attempt. Um, the fact that only 87% had a psychiatric diagnosis, I think, is a really good reminder that there are patients who are suicidal who are not being seen by psychiatrists. Um, And so we really need our medical colleagues help working with these patients. Um, The authors give the numbers about how well it went with getting the sites to do the parts of the protocol the sites were supposed to do. Yes. And I think in some ways, this is the most interesting part of the paper because when you try to do things like this, even psychiatrists sort of roll their eyes at the feasibility of, of implementing programs like this. And so I think it's really important to look at how they did. So when they look at the intervention, the third phase of the study, where they were supposed to be a secondary screen for suicidality by the ED physician, the medical records review said that 90% of the time the physician did a suicide screen but in only 4% of the record of the cases, did they actually do the study specific secondary suicide screen? But they only documented that they did the study specific suicide screen. So, I mean. In the intervention group, 60% of the people in that group got at least one CLASP phone call, at least one phone call for doing the problem solving suicide. I, Uh, management, among the 60% who did a phone call, a third of them said that they had completed a safety plan in the ED. Right. So to me, the safety plan is the key part in many ways. And they didn't apparently have the nurses document that process at all. 
which again sort of reinforces the sense that what happens is the the nurse hands the safety plan document to the patient and says, yes. please do this. But I think that's also a very real world reflection of if you were going to do this in a practicing emergency department, what would be yeah. reasonable to expect with all of the other nursing demands on emergency department nurses? You know, it's an interesting kind of bootstrapping problem because on a practical level, your capacity to actually get the nurses buy-in to doing this depends on being able to say to them, look, this really does work. If you put this, if you, if we put our resources, your resources, your like scarce time into doing this will actually reduce deaths by suicide. So at this point, it, again, it feels to me kind of impressive if they got some results, even with this. So that is what's incredible about this study is that they got results. They're comparing against treatment as usual. So they have like a basal rate of suicide attempts in the year following index ED visit. And that was about 23% during the treatment as usual phase. It gets down to about 21.5% in the screening phase. There's no difference with just screening, but it drops to 18.3% in the intervention phase. So it's an absolute risk reduction of about 5%, but that translates to a total risk reduction of about 20%. Pretty amazing. We don't have very many things that reduce the risk that much. I mean, and it's the, considering that the rarity of these events and a number needed to treat of 22 is like amazing. Yeah, the authors compare it to the number needed to treat for statins to prevent a heart attack. And like that's over a hundred. Um, so this is a like, even with adherence to doing the intervention was limited. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like imagine just, if they did it 100% of the time. So they do actually cost that out in a separate paper. There's a, a separate publication by the authors, um, Dun, Dunlap and all, at all in Psychiatric Services in 2019, um, where they do a cost-effectiveness analysis of this study. Screening alone costs about $500 in provider time, and screening plus intervention will cost about $1,063. And there's a previous work showing that each suicide attempt costs about $13,522. The limitations, however, is that this was not done in a randomized clinical trial. This was done by, over time, having hospitals do different kinds of interventions. Why wouldn't you do a trial in which you write the most re regular way of thinking about the study is that you would randomize individual patients to treatment and as usual, or screening, or screening plus intervention. So, so the first question is, why didn't they just do that? Problems is if you start doing an intervention with some people that people think works, it's very hard to get them to not do it to the other treatment yeah. arms, right? Yeah. Like yes. once you say, we're going to start screening some people for suicidal ideation, then it I seems see. obvious that you should just screen everybody. And so so the, the difference between that and between an ED, which saying, or, or maybe it's just any effectiveness trial, is that you don't get to, in randomizing, send them to different teams and providers. Yeah. It's really okay. hard to have an outside. So like normally we would control some of this stuff by having independent raters and independent like people who aren't on the side and then the laborer involved in sending each patient to different places and having it done by offsite people and all that becomes very, very, very complicated. Right. And in general, when you're doing 
a systems level intervention. Like we are now going to use a totally new protocol for managing this disease. Um, the, the risk of contagion, the risk of people slipping into the new protocol on the participants they're supposed to doing the old protocol is very high. It's very hard to get people not to do it on the if you're randomizing by individual patients. Yeah. It's a it's like an equipoise issue. If you believe the intervention is likely to not be hurtful but could be helpful, then you'll want to do it for everybody. And in this case I think that's realistic, but the other thing is that each of these steps, starting the screening, making it universal, then having the staff do all of the pieces, that requires a massive amount of infrastructure investment. So you have to train the nurses, you have to train the physicians, you have to upgrade your EHR to have all these modules in it, or you have to have the paper available. And once you do that, like hospitals don't want to spend the money to like do all of that, to train all the doctors, but then they're not really doing it. I mean, it's like they're investing in this process as they go along, but of course that also means that there is a progressive wave of the staff having suicide awareness as you're moving through the study, in addition to the specific interventions that the study phases are designed to do. One of the ways that you could do this is what's called a cluster randomized trial, where instead of randomizing individual participants, you randomize hospitals, essentially, in this case. So you would say ED number one, you guys are just going to do treatment as usual for the entire study. ED number two, you guys are doing screening only for the entire study. And ED number three, you guys are doing screening plus intervention for the entire study. And so now we have three randomized groups across three different hospital systems. The problem with that gets to be a numbers problem because when you're randomizing individuals, each individual is totally separate and counts as one observation, unpolluted by everybody else. When you're randomizing by clusters, Everybody within the cluster has some similarity just by the fact that they're being treated at that particular hospital, right? And we know that the, the way people go to particular hospitals isn't random. And so if everybody at hospital number one is really alike and has a bunch of characteristics that are similar to each other and also different from the people at hospital number two, then you're effectively decreasing your N. Um, I mean, what's the point of randomizing over eight things? It doesn't actually do what randomization is supposed to do. So the nice thing about the cluster randomized design is it lets you keep a piece of the trial that's randomized, but it requires a pretty big N um, because you have to account for the fact that all the people at the site getting the same intervention have some inherent similarity to them. Yeah, the hospitals are not the same at baseline so when you say it requires a big N, um, you mean like a bigger N of sites? Mm -hmm. Probably at least 50. Yes. So, so in the design paper for the EDSAFE study, they said they would have needed at least 40 sites in order to do this exact same trial that they did in eight sites as a cluster randomized design. I mean, my take on it is that we really don't care. I mean, you care from like some sort of like, we're really trying to answer these questions as rigorously possible perspective, but this is an effectiveness trial and an effectiveness you're like, should we pay to do this? Do we get return on investment? And they pretty much showed in the real world that you do, right? I mean, that fundamental question, you don't need 
randomization to sort of answer the question of like, should hospitals care about this? The one other thing the authors point out is a limitation on their study is this other systems effects over time, right? So what this study can't assess is all of the stuff that's happening in the background unrelated to the study that occurred between when they were like doing screening only, or sorry, treatment as usual only to screening, to screening and intervention. Now that I'm, I think I'm understanding these sentences, now it actually does seem more troubling <laughs> because, you know, when I think about the last, you know, 15 years that I've been in our city, there have been lots of, there have been some years or several years in a row where the local environment in terms of mental health care systems is about the same. And then there have been groups of a couple of years where lots of things changed in terms of, of uh, how payment was made for public mm -hmm. sector patients. We had an enormous change. And that's, that's aside from, that was a structural change. That's aside from just changes in state funding or changes in, um, in insurers and in which insurers are doing different things and and also just the local changes in economic prosperity mm -hmm. and how those impact. So so then I, 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 it starts to seem to me like doing a sequential thing that's that on an on an issue like on an area like psychiatry where all kinds of social determinants of mental health are at play and structural things economically are at play that yeah if you spread that out over couple of years, you, you got some concerns. So, so yeah. I think the, the, the hope in response to that is that this was seven, eight emergency rooms across seven states. And we have such a terrible patchwork of things across states right. that even if that stuff was happening in one or two places, it wasn't happening in all of them. Or maybe in some places, the system changes were making things better. And in some places, the system changes were making things yeah. worse. I, I think that that's a pretty good response, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but you're right that like one of the other things that we know from a public health perspective decreases the suicide rate is like an increase in the minimum wage. Like if a state passes a law, then we actually see uh, financial crises go down and then you see suicides go down. So, but I still think this is a cool study and yes. I still believe, I mean, I do really believe um, in the fundamental um, I mean, you know, you know, my deeply cynical heart never believes in anything, but I really do think that in this case, the idea that medical ERs need to be partners in this and that it really matters if we are reaching out to people, even just the effect that when they did this, like the doctor talked to them about it, the nurse talked to them about it, a therapist person talked to them about it, right? I mean, like, it's just bringing more people into the network of like acknowledging this as a problem and being able to say it out loud to people. And, and I really think that like that's positive regardless of the limitations that we argue about with the technical stuff. Adam, do you feel like you understand the sentences we started with? I think I do. And, and I think it really comes down to the issues of that it's, that it's an effectiveness uh, trial and that, and that we, that they're, that they're trying to say to us that sure in in an abstract non-real world it would you know you'd ideally like to run it all at the same time um, because there are these concerns if you try to do it 
over this long time, these confounding things about social determinants or about you know economic changes, but it's just not realistic. You just aren't gonna be able to really do uh, a randomized controlled trial of this kind of work in EDs. And so this is a kind of like a limitation that you just have to live with. Yeah, and, and that it doesn't, um, EDs don't have to do a tremendous amount of work or have perfect adherence to that work to make a big difference, it's a meaningful so, difference. Yes. In perfect the is the enemy of good. Right, it's so heartening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Yeah No Journal Club. Prediction of the Yeah No Journal Club is supported by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology Faculty Innovation and Education Award, awarded to me, Adrian Dela Cruz. The opinions and views shared in this podcast are the views of the individuals and do not represent views of any institution. Specifically, the opinions expressed do not reflect those of the ABPN, UT Southwestern, the O'Donnell Brain Institute, the UT System, or the state of Texas. You can find the Yano Journal Club on your favorite podcast app. Please rate us and write a review. Visit our show page at www.yanojournalclub.simplecast.com. That's Y-E-A-H-N-O journalclub.simplecast.com to learn more and find links to the article abstracts. We love your suggestions. You can email us directly at yanojournalclub at utsouthwestern.edu. Do you need materials to run a journal club? You can find our journal club superstar curriculum in the Adpert virtual training office or by visiting our show page. Keep listening so you can stop worrying and love the literature.